1: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
2: On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, we'll be looking into the history of astronomy, and in particular, a set of Mars globes that tell an interesting story about our understanding of and misunderstandings about the red planet.
3: They represent a side of astronomy that we perhaps often might not think about, which is the popular and public side of astronomy. They're not your typical big telescope. The other reason that they're particularly interesting is that especially in the case of these globes. What they do is that they can serve as a kind of challenge to the conventional story that we have.
2: And we'll find out what we can learn from the way that ancient and indigenous cultures interpret the heavens. Plus, news about planetary formation, dark gamma-ray bursts, and the Voyager mission reaching the edge of our solar system. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy.
1: Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
2: As always, I'm joined by Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford, so let's start with a roundup of this month's space science news. Andrew, what do you have for us?
0: Well, I've picked up on an announcement that's been made this month about gamma-ray bursts. Now, these are a mysterious class of objects which, as the name suggests, we detect by looking for bursts of gamma rays. Now, gamma-ray bursts are transient events, so you see them once, they fade away, and then they never recur from the exact same direction. And for this reason, and many other good reasons, people associate, them, at least some of them, with supernovae, that that is the death of uh, massive stars. And gamma ray bursts, if you like, are the most energetic that you could possibly imagine those supernovae being. But despite the fact that since we discovered them just a couple of decades ago, we've made great progress in understanding what they are and what events they're associated with, there are various mysteries that still surround gamma ray bursts. And one of those is that sometimes you see what we call the optical afterglow. So that's a sort of pinprick of optical light that you can see with a standard telescope. But other times we search for where we know there's been a gamma ray burst and we find absolutely nothing there in the optical at all. So what's been in the news this month is... The Max Planck Institute in Germany have have put out a press release detailing some work they've been doing using a telescope known as GROND, which is uh, a two-metre telescope, so not enormous by today's professional standards. But the unique thing about this telescope is that it's actually automated to automatically look at a patch of the sky as soon as possible after we've been alerted to one of these gamma-ray bursts going off. So the alert itself comes from NASA's spacecraft SWIFT, and then usually within about five minutes, this telescope on the ground is automatically directed to that patch of the sky. Now because this provides such a reliable way of following up to see what there is there in visible light or not there it means that we can really get the statistics and we can really start to pin down exactly what's going on here. And the conclusion that comes out of this work is that there are essentially two reasons for why some of the gamma ray bursts have no visible counterpart at all. The first possibility is that some of these things are probably very distant indeed. And when they're that distant, although you can still see the extremely energetic gamma rays, uh, a variety of problems, not least just the fact that it's so far away, stops you from seeing the uh, optical counterpart. But perhaps more interestingly... This work has confirmed that dust, which we've discussed before on this podcast and is literally little particles that float around in space. Dust is likely to be responsible for shielding away some of the visible light that we would otherwise see, so making the visible light very dim because the sight of the gamma ray burst is sort of shrouded in dense, mucky dust. Now, the, the gamma rays can get through that dust, but the light can't. It's not incredibly groundbreaking people have put forward both of these ideas before, but it's a nice step forward in being systematic about checking that these effects are really there. And I think over the next few months, actually, I happen to know that there are other groups working on on similar studies that are going to be looking more at the detailed properties of that dust. And it turns out that that dust might have some weird properties. I can't say too much more just at the moment, but uh, uh, eyes on that over the next few months. Well, thank you very much. And Dominic, what do you have for us this
4: month? Well, there's something quite surprising about the rocks that we see close to the surface of the Earth, and that is that they contain quite large traces of gold and platinum. Now, these, of course, are very rare and very valuable metals, but models that we have of the formation of the Earth suggest that these metals should actually be in the centre of the Earth rather than close to the surface where we find them. And that's because they bond very strongly to iron. And in the models that we have of the formation of the Earth, the Earth was liquid in its early phase and the iron was heavier than everything else, so it sunk to the middle to form the iron core, which gives the Earth its magnetic field. So we have to wonder where this golden platinum came from. And a paper in Science this month perhaps has the answer, which is that after the Earth began to solidify, there were still a huge number of meteorites coming in, raining down onto the Earth and supplying new material. And you can actually calculate how much you would need to explain metals that we see. And it's about one part in 300 of the total mass of the Earth. And you can do the same calculation for Mars and the Moon, and you can find similar sort of proportions raining in onto those, and you can start to think about what distribution of asteroids you would need to cause those meteorites. Now, what perhaps really clinches this argument is there's another puzzle about how the Moon formed, because we have this picture that a Mars-sized planet crashed into the Earth and completely melted the Earth, and part of the Earth's mantle material was spun off and that formed the Moon. But in that case, you would expect the Moon to be orbiting in roughly the same plane as the equator of the Earth. And in fact, it's off by about 15 degrees. So what was it that knocked the Moon off its orbit? Well, it could have been not that the Moon was knocked, but that the Earth had these meteorites raining in so much mass. And that actually tipped the Earth's rotation axis by 15 degrees to explain that puzzle. Does this tie in with other
2: evidence that we see of bombardment, so looking at craters on the Moon or on nearby planets?
4: On the Earth, unfortunately, yet the evidence would all be gone because the Earth has active geological processes, and so the craters caused by these meteorite impacts would have been wiped away long ago. And if you're interested, that was a paper by William Botke of the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and that appeared in the journal Science on the 10th of December.
2: And we will put references and links up for all of the stories that you hear today at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Carolyn, what do you have for us?
5: Well, this month there was this rather overly hyped announcement from NASA that didn't, after all, reveal evidence for the first life on other planets, which uh, is kind of a bit what they were leading us to suspect. But it did allow us to marvel all the more at the sort of complexity of life that our own planet can come up with all on its own. And the issue is that traditionally there are six chemical elements thought to be crucial to the sort of biochemistry of life. You've got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur and phosphorus. And you need these to make up all the organic molecules in living matter, you know, including all the nucleic acids, the lipids, the proteins. However, this news was of a bacterium found living in a very salty lake in California that seems able to break this rule. And indeed, it can replace the phosphorus with arsenic. So it's the first time we've ever found anything that can use this toxic chemical for its own growth and to sustain its life. You know, while this may not be immediately relevant for astronomy, it just proves that life is a lot more flexible than we thought. And it just winds the criteria of where life might be possible, what kind of environments, not just on our Earth, but in other solar systems through the galaxy.
2: It's been quite a controversial paper, actually, that, first of all, NASA were accused of over-hyping it. And I guess when NASA say we have an important release about astrobiology, then people are going to get quite excited. But also, some of the biology has been under question.
5: Yes. I mean, the issue here, as I understand it, is that it's not like these microbes do this naturally in their own environment. These microbes have been removed from the lake and taken to the lab where they were gradually weaned off the phosphorus and introduced to arsenic and they did the replacement, it's clear they would still much rather use phosphorus. So it is a rather kind of artificial setup. But, you know, I still think it's, it's got potential for teaching us quite a lot about bacteria and how versatile they are.
2: It's also been a wonderful example of... In a way, citizen science, because the the corrections, the criticisms largely came from the internet rather from the scientific community. The, the blogosphere, as it were, went crazy to try and correct and adjust all of the claims that the paper were making.
5: And this brings up another interesting layer of uh, debate about how you should carry out this kind of scientific conversation, because we're used to carrying it all out within scientific press and journals. And yet this is happening much more rapidly than we're used to within the internet and within blogospheres, So it's, it's quite a different way of doing science and responding to criticism that I think is quite hard for some of the scientists involved.
2: It's a brave new world, I think, for trying to incorporate new media, trying to incorporate the internet into the very traditional and quite slow-moving world of peer-reviewed journals.
5: And it also teaches us all the perils of the press release. <laughs>
0: Andrew, what do you have for us? This month, the people behind the project called Galaxy Zoo, which you may have heard of, have announced not one but two new websites along the lines that they've been working on before. So Galaxy Zoo itself is a website that's been around for several years where people, anybody at all who's interested, can log in and classify galaxies. So literally this website gives you an image of a galaxy which nobody at all may have studied in detail before because there are so many galaxies out there. There's just not time for people to look at all of them. And it asks you some basic questions about what that galaxy looks like, whether it has any interesting features, whether it has spiral arms, and so on and
2: so on. In fact, just recently they announced an interesting discovery about barred galaxies.
4: Yes, we talked about it last month, in fact.
0: Yes, indeed, that's right. But in fact, some of the even more exciting stuff that's come out of Galaxy Zoo has been uh, unexpected discoveries where people have seen unusual features in galaxies. Because Actually, if we're looking for properties that we already know about, you can imagine you can program a computer to go through these images. So for the example of the uh, the barred galaxies being redder, for instance, you could have written a computer algorithm to go through and check that for you. Whereas on the other hand, for spotting things that are just a bit weird, and and coming up with new ideas based on on that, it's much better to get human eyes to to look over data. So that was the idea behind Galaxy Zoo: first of all, to to provide some basic classifications, but also to spot unusual things that we might not otherwise ha- have known about. So. As I said earlier, they've now launched two new websites. The first of these is called the Milky Way Project. And here they're looking through pictures taken by the Spitzer Space Telescope. So that means they're infrared pictures, pictures taken in infrared light, which show up very cold features And they're looking for very cold, dense clumps of gas within our own galaxy that would lead to, for instance, stars forming in those regions. Because to form a star, you need to make the the gas very dense and ironically very cold before before you start the nuclear fusion process. So that's the first of these. And, of course, the big difference compared to Galaxy Zoo is that it's mainly focused on stuff within our own galaxy rather than stuff uh, in other galaxies. But they've we also launched a, a second new website which is called Planet Hunters and this is using data from the Kepler Space Telescope which is a telescope designed to stare just at one small patch of the night sky continuously to monitor how the amount of light coming from all the different stars in that one small patch is changing over time. And the reason people like to do that is because if there are planets around those stars, then every now and again, as those planets orbit around their parent stars, they will block out some of the light just because, by coincidence almost, they they get in the way of the light coming from the star. They're in between our telescope and uh, the star that the light is coming from. And so this Planet Hunters website allows uh, anybody who wants to log in and have a look at what people call the light curve. That's just a a plot of how much light is coming from the star against time. You can log in and you can literally draw a box around anything that looks like a little dip and therefore could be indicative
2: of a planet. When you're looking for something that specific though that's really quite tightly defined whereas when looking at galaxies people can flag all sorts of interesting things if you're looking for a dip in a graph then surely that is the sort of thing where you would use an algorithm rather than get people involved
0: yeah i have to admit that that's one of the things that slightly puzzles me it's clear with this new milky way project that that there is a reason to get humans involved whereas with the planet hunter's project you might imagine actually for this sort of thing you'd rather have a computer because humans have a tendency to see patterns uh, where there aren't any it's just sort of hardwired into our brains to look for patterns in in stuff which may be not there at all so it'll be interesting to see exactly what the team do with the data they get from this planet hunters project
2: and of course galaxy zoo is a wonderful model for getting people engaged with the science and really feeling like they're part of it
5: Yes, so I'd like to just finish off with something that certainly was an inspiration for me when I was a teenager, thinking about doing astronomy. And that was the Voyager spacecraft, which at the time was flying past the gas giants and sending back those wonderful first images of Jupiter and Saturn. So it's great to have it coming into the public eye again with news this month that it's beginning to reach the very edge of our solar system. Even though Voyager 1 long since finished its mission to study the the gas giants in the outer solar system, it's carried on coasting on its way and getting increasingly ever more distant from Earth. But while it's doing this, one of the instruments in Voyager 1 has still been measuring the flow of charged particles onto its face. And this is really just a way you can monitor the density and the velocity of the constant stream of charged particles that comes from the sun, called the solar wind. And this month, scientists announced that the spacecraft is so far out, this is 10.8 billion miles from the sun now, that it can no longer detect the solar wind. And this means it's reaching the very edge of what's known as the heliosphere, or it's like the bubble that the sun creates with its solar wind. It's now moving into an area which officially is called the heliosheath, but once it passes through that in a few years' time, it is then officially out of our solar system
2: do we expect we'll still be able to hear from it? Will we still be getting data from it, even when it's properly out of the solar system?
5: I should think so, and I should hope so.
2: (laughs) Well, last month we introduced a new element to Naked Astronomy, a high-speed roundup of astronomy facts. We asked for your suggestions as to what to call it, and some of you have come through for us. Luca Botic tweeted to suggest the Naked Facts. Luke McCarthy emailed in to suggest Data Dump. Now there are obviously more than one connotation to the word dump. (laughs)
5: I'm glad you said that
2: (laughs) (laughs) But otherwise it's it's very true, we we are dumping a lot of data very quickly. Brian Bithell wrote in from LA to suggest fact impact and Bruce Sandcombe emailed to say that fast facts is great and he learned more about Saturn in three minutes than ever before, but he's working on some name suggestions. So I think we should give Bruce and everyone else a little bit more time to get some suggestions in In the next programme, which will come out towards the end of January, we'll pick our favourite from all of your suggestions and then we'll put the decision in your hands. More info on how to vote next month.
4: But now, everything you need to know about the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope orbits 350 miles above our heads. It travels at
0: 7.5 kilometres per second.
5: So it circles the Earth every 97 minutes.
0: Its mirror measures 2.5 metres across. And its tube is 13 metres from end to end.
5: The whole structure weighs over 11 tonnes. It draws 3
4: kilowatts of power, as much as an electric kettle.
0: And needs the equivalent of 20 car batteries worth of storage, as well as its solar panels.
5: The Hubble Space Telescope was launched aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery in 1990.
0: And celebrated 20 years in space last April. It's been serviced five times by the Space Shuttle.
5: And it can carry five different cameras and spectroscopes at any one time.
4: Two on-board computers control Hubble. One steers the telescope and the other records the image.
0: Originally, custom-designed machines were used.
5: But for the last 10 years, an onboard Intel 486 has controlled Hubble's instruments. From space,
4: Hubble can observe in infrared and ultraviolet light. Even though these wavelengths are completely
0: invisible from the ground as they're blocked by the Earth's atmosphere.
5: Hubble has 20 times better resolution than traditional ground-based telescopes.
4: But it hasn't always been that way. For its first four years, a fault in its optics made it a little better at all. Hubble has measured the expansion of the universe with unprecedented accuracy
5: it has seen distant supernova and found evidence for dark energy
4: it has seen debris discs in the Orion nebula which might one day form into planets it's produced
0: images of distant members of the solar system pluto and eris
5: but it has never been pointed at mercury which is too close to the sun to be observed safely
2: There are even more factoids on our site at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. But if there's a topic that you would like to get the high-speed lowdown on, then do get in touch. Email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. We'll explore the history of our understanding of Mars, as told by a collection of Mars globes, shortly. But first, Dominic, we've had an email from John Bray and another from Aaron Thomas, both relating to a question you answered last month about gravity at the centre of the Earth. You said that if we were floating at the centre of a hollow Earth, we could in a way discount the influence of the Moon. But as we know that the Moon exerts a huge influence on the Earth to create tides and so on, how can that be?
4: That's right. What I was saying last month was that on the surface of the Earth, we don't really notice the gravitational pull of the Moon and the Sun. Now, of course, we are still subject to those forces, and you can calculate exactly how strong they are from putting the numbers into Newton's law of gravity and you can work out that the pull we feel towards the sun if I express it in terms of g which is the force we feel towards the earth it's about one two thousandth of a g and the force we feel towards the moon is about a hundred times weaker still now that's quite a small force but it's strong enough that for example if I put something down on the table in front of me I might expect it to start rolling off towards the rising sun in the east in the morning and I might expect it to roll off to the west in the evening. And we obviously don't see that and that is because the Earth is continually tumbling towards the sun and we are tumbling with it as we are orbiting the sun once a year. And that means that there's no relative motion between the things around us and our surroundings that we might notice. But of course it is true that the gravitational pull of the Moon is what causes the tides. And the reason for that is that the strength of gravitational fields varies from one place to another. Gravitational fields always pull you towards a body and the strength of that force decreases with your distance from that body. Now, the gravitational force that is needed to keep us in orbit about the Sun is the gravitational force at the centre of the Earth. Which is where the Earth's mass averages out. On the surface of the Earth, we're at a different point, and so the gravitational field is slightly different. And it's that difference between the two gravitational fields which gives rise to tides. Now, imagine that you're standing with the moon overhead. You're slightly closer to the moon than the centre of the Earth is, and so you feel a slightly stronger pull. And it's that stronger pull which is pulling the sea up into a high tide. And likewise, if you're on the far side of the Earth with the Moon beneath your feet, then there's a slightly weaker pull towards the Moon, and so the sea is less strongly pulled down by the Moon and it also rises up into a high tide. So it's the changes in the gravitational fields of the Moon and Sun which give rise to the tides, and that's actually a very small change across the volume of the Earth. The change in the case of the Moon is one three thousandths, of its total gravitational field. In the case of the sun, it's even smaller because the sun is so far away. It's 1 500 thousandths of the total pull of the sun, which is the the change that causes the solar tides.
2: And in fact, we're going to talk a bit more about the moon later on. But first, Andrew, could you help with this relativity question from Chris Siragusa in New York? He wants to know how time dilation works from each perspective. That what he's getting at is that when you're in a rocket flying away from Earth at near light speed, from your perspective, it's the Earth moving away from you.
0: Yeah, and and one way that this is often phrased is in terms of something called the twin paradox. So if you do a Google search for the twin paradox, you will throw up millions of references, some of which uh, are helpful and some of which are less than helpful. So let me see if I can explain this. It's normally stated that you have twins, and one of those twins gets in a rocket and travels very fast. And according to Einstein's special relativity time must slow down for the person in the rocket because they are travelling very fast. And so on their return, that person would then be physically younger than their twin, perhaps even by quite a large fraction if they go uh, fast
2: enough and go on long enough journey. This all sounds very abstract, but we've measured this, haven't we? We've put atomic clocks on very fast flights and we can see a difference.
0: That's right. We've measured the effects of time dilation in exactly that way. And in fact, every time you use a GPS, uh, a satellite navigation system, you're relying on Einstein's description of how time dilation works to get the right answer out of your uh, sat-nav device because it needs to take into account that the clocks that are up in orbit and whizzing around the Earth that control this system are going at a slightly different rate from what they'd be doing on Earth. So, yes, we have actually measured this. So if we go back to to the so-called twin paradox, the paradox part of this is exactly what this question is getting at. Because speed, as we discussed uh, in the last podcast, is relative. Uh, And so you might imagine from the perspective of the twin who got into the rocket, the earthbound twin... Was the one that went away and came back. And so, in a sense, you can think of the Earth having made the trip and not the rocket. Now, if you analyze it from that perspective, then it sounds like it's the Earth-bound twin who's moving, so it must be her who's the younger of the twins, not the one who was in the rocket. So, clearly, not both of these views can be right. We've we've come to a contradiction. So what's going on here? Well, actually, what we're using to do these calculations about time slowing down is Einstein's special relativity. And the way that that was formulated by Einstein assumes that there are no accelerations. So, for instance, if you're standing on Earth, roughly speaking, you're not accelerating very much. So you can use special relativity to perform calculations like the one that we're talking about. On the other hand, if you're in a rocket, then you are going to have to accelerate quite substantially, if only to reverse your direction. I mean, if you imagine you're going away from the Earth very fast, and then you need to reverse your direction and come back to the Earth, that's going to involve a massive acceleration. And there's no ambiguity about what's doing the acceleration. You can say without any ambiguity that the rocket is the thing that's accelerating. And so when you're sitting in the rocket, because you actually feel the effects of that acceleration, if you want to do calculations about relativity now, you need not Einstein's special relativity, but Einstein's general relativity. Now, those equations are much more complex. As you can imagine, it has to take into account much more uh, possible factors, including these things like uh, accelerating rockets and so on. But if you do apply those equations instead, you come back to the conclusion that it's the twin who's on the rocket who ends up being younger so that is the correct conclusion and there isn't a contradiction as long as you use the right equations
2: for the right situations. Well thank you Andrew, that was a, that was a great answer and it did make sense but, and I do find that those sorts of questions frighten me so I'm glad that we have somebody with us who can actually answer them. But now I went along to the Whipple Museum of the History of Science on Free School Lane in Cambridge and met Josh Knoll to find out how Globes can tell a story about our understanding of the solar system.
3: We're in the upper gallery of the Whipple Museum. This has traditionally been a space that the museum has used for special exhibitions and temporary exhibitions. The most recent one of which uh, we put in here was an exhibition of the museum's very extensive and impressive collection of globes. What is it that we can learn from looking at globes? There are a number of ways that uh, I could answer that. I mean, they represent a side of astronomy that we perhaps often might not think about, which is the popular and public side of astronomy. They're not your typical big telescope. Uh, They represent the material culture of the consumption of uh, astronomy. So I think they're interesting in that sense. The other reason that they're particularly interesting is that especially in the case of these globes, what they do is that they can serve as a kind of challenge to the conventional story that we have. So if you take the case of Mars, there are lots of well-known stories about Mars, particularly about what I'm interested in, which is this controversy over whether or not there were canals on Mars. And the globes were an interesting way to look at that story and see if you could fit the globes within that story. And I found, in a sense, that you couldn't, that somehow, therefore, the globes were a nice kind of challenge to the conventional story about Mars. So, moving
2: over to your display of Mars globes, there are five different globes in here, and if it wasn't for the label, I would not know that these were supposed to be showing me the same planet.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most remarkable things about them that immediately strikes you and why I think it's such a wonderful collection to have in one case. You're completely right, they look, all five of them look really very different. Probably the only possible similarity between all of them that you can see is this tendency towards a kind of orangey-brown hue. Other than that, the features that they mark on them all look very, very different. And this is over a very short time span as well, if we look at these globes. If we look at the three globes that predate the space age that we have here, the first one's from 1873, the next one 1898, and the next 1913. So you're looking at a span of 40 years, and really, they're completely different, each globe. And that, to me, is absolutely fascinating. And one of the things that drew me to these and made me want to to discover, well, what are these globes... Why were they made and what are they depicting and who was making them? And, of course, who was was consuming them, who was looking at them? Who were these (coughs) aimed
2: at? Were these for scientists to mark (coughs) out what they've seen and then check it later? Were they for the public to consume or were they for a rather more discerning, perhaps wealthy clientele (coughs) just as an object of art?
3: Well, I think each globe... uh, has a slightly different intended audience. If you look at our first one from 1873, now this predates the idea of canals. Um, The canals were first mentioned by an Italian uh, astronomer in 1877. So this globe that predates them is a very interesting um, artefact of the period just before this, when for the first time Mars was beginning to be coherently mapped. So what we need to understand about Mars is that it was at the very limit of the resolving power of Victorian telescopes. It was an extremely difficult object to observe, even under the best conditions. So what had happened in the 19th century up to that point is that there was uh, no coherent map of Mars. There were a lot of different astronomers passing pictures back and forth, discussing things. And now this globe is one of the first to set down and embody a coherent map of Mars. And I think, in a way, that's why this globe was made. We don't know a great deal about it. We know that it was commissioned by um, uh, an aristocrat, Captain Hans Busk. They were made by the London globe-maker Malby. The map itself is by a very famous Victorian, what you might want to call a popularizer of astronomy, a gentleman called Richard Proctor, He had taken the numerous drawings of the Reverend William Rutter Dawes, who was known amongst the Mars observing community to be a particularly good observer and draftsman, and he had collated all these drawings and produced a coherent map. And Proctor himself said that the beauty of a globe is that it's an actual embodiment of the planet. So it's a a rhetorical tool that I think is more powerful than a map. So working on that basis, we can look through the rest and see
2: how the details, the names, the structures, the contrast has actually changed. And oddly, it seems to change quite dramatically. In fact, the most recent globe you have, which is just from 1978, seems to have lost a lot of the detail.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what happens is that after 1877, Schiaparelli talks about these canale. There are certain people within the astronomical community who jump upon this idea of possible canals as potentially evidence for extraterrestrial life on Mars. Now, this may sound wacky to us, but it absolutely was not at the time. It was uh, a widely discussed and important topic. Was there life in the solar system? Camille Flammarion, who is the man who commissioned and produced the map for our second globe from 1898, he jumped upon the canals as suggested by Schiaparelli and suggested that this was an interesting idea. And he set up his own observatory on the outskirts of Paris, especially for observing Mars. And he produced these maps and he produced this globe. And we can see that there's a great deal more detail on this globe than the earlier. And that detail is particularly lots of straight, dark lines. And those were the canals. And those, Flammarion suggested, may be evidence that there's intelligent life on Mars constructing waterways for moving water. It's a slightly organically shaped surface. Flammarion slightly hedges his bets a little with his structure. And that is distinct from our next globe, which very much takes this Flammarion model of having these straight lines and turns it into an absolutely and completely linear construction. It's made by a Danish artist who we know very little about, a bedridden Danish artist who hand painted them. And she's based it on the maps of the very famous American Percival Lowell. He was an extremely wealthy businessman, an interested amateur scientist. And so he built his own observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And the observatory is still there. Again, dedicated to looking at Mars. And now he absolutely believed that the canals were definite evidence. And so he, they are ruler straight on his maps. And they're connected by nodes. And the nodes, he said, were the main habitations for the Martians. And so this globe was made by this artist, Ingeborg Bruhn, she was fascinated by Lowell's ideas and by his maps. And so it was her way of kind of distributing what she thought was a representation, a true representation of Mars. Moving forward around 60 years, we have a globe from
2: 1970. Now, by this point, of course, we have much better telescopes. We
3: have been out into our solar system. What does this globe tell us? Well, this globe is actually, um, it probably just post date uh, the first NASA missions to Mars. Obviously, uh, interest in Mars continues. The, even the idea of the canals doesn't go away. history of astronomy sometimes is written as if it disappears... Public interest in Mars is still very strong. NASA is very keen to send probes to Mars itself to be able to take images close up. In the mid-60s, Mariners 3 and 4 are sent to do just this, and Mariner 4 is able to fly past Mars and send back close-up images of the Martian surface. Now, these images are quite limited, but what they do show is that there's no sign of Martians, no cities, no canals, and it appears to be quite um, arid, pockmarked surface with lots of craters in. And so this globe, which is produced just after it, is intended to show this feature. And so what's interesting, I think, is that they've retained... Very much this idea of Mars having lots of interesting and novel surface features. There's a lot of contrast in this globe. And there's an awful lot of craters and features and big mountains and volcanoes. Uh, And I think it's kind of hanging on to this idea of Mars having all of these interesting and novel features on its surface. That idea doesn't last that long. If we then look at the next globe, which is made in 1978, so probably about 10 years after this globe, this is made after Mariner 9, which is uh, the first space probe that is actually able to orbit Mars, and that sends back images of 100% of the surface. And it's only then when it really hits home that Mars is quite different from a lot of these previous ideas, that in fact it's actually quite a featureless in many ways, planets. It seems to be very flat, very arid, very rocky, but it does have a small number of really rather spectacular and, and huge features, giant craters, the remnants of what appear to be riverbeds, there are volcanoes, and so this globe is a topographical globe that actually shows the three-dimensional features of the Martian surface. So it's really got to the point now where the most interesting thing about Mars is these large three-dimensional features like craters.
2: That was Josh Knoll explaining how globes can help to fill in our understanding of the history of astronomy. It really is a wonderful collection as well. Yeah, it's frightening to think
0: that although we think we're doing very objective science all the time, the prevailing ideas of the day, like whether Mars has been terraformed or not,
2: reveal themselves through the way that people present their data and uh, as Josh was saying actually it's also very interesting that what gets written down and passed on is actually it's written from the perspective of the people who turned out to be right and so these sorts of things that appear to be crackpot ideas were actually pretty well regarded at the time and and it's only now that we look back and think well that's obviously crazy
0: yeah and I think there's a, a clear historical lesson that we ought to
2: pay attention to Well, as Josh mentioned, the Whipple Museum does also have a collection of moon globes as well as the fascinating Mars globes. And that leads me to this question from Michael Zook. He says, with all of the planets and moons being round, or spherical to be more precise, how is it that we can see a half moon? You can't get a flat edge from a sphere. Carolyn, could you help us out with this?
5: Well, it's best to explain really with a very simple experiment anyone can do, which is you get a ball... And you draw what we call a great circle on it. So a circle that's the same diameter as the ball and you're effectively passing through both the north and south pole of your kind of miniature moon. And you let this line represent the dividing line between night and day and the moon. And really all you have to do is observe how this line appears to you as you rotate the ball round on its axis. So when the line is tilted away from you, it'll appear curved, exactly as you get for the edge of a crescent or a gibbous moon. But when it's exactly halfway round, it'll appear straight because the bits of the line curving away from you are still in a straight line. And so I think that is probably the answer to the question.
2: So it's almost an illusion. We know that that actually is a curved line because it is on the surface of a sphere. But from our perspective, and because of the plane that we're in, it appears straight.
5: Yes, the curving is going away, exactly away from us at that time.
2: Just staying with the Moon and staying with you, Carolyn, for now, he also asked, why is it that our Moon doesn't spin? And again, I think this is a, a common illusion, a common misconception.
5: Well... Our moon does spin, and it's just that it's in what's known as a synchronous orbit with the Earth, which all all that means is that the time it takes the moon to turn once around an its axis exactly matches the time it takes to travel once around the Earth. So this means the moon looks exactly the same to us because it's always turning the same surface to face us all the time.
2: So again, it's, uh, it's an illusion that it's not spinning. In fact, using the same ball or orange that you've already drawn a line on to demonstrate the previous one, if you try and move that round in a circle around you without rotating it, it should become quite obvious that you need to rotate it to keep that face facing towards you.
5: Yes, that's exactly right. And it's a completely natural phenomenon known as tidal locking, which I think we've mentioned before in this programme. And it just is where this sort of again we're going back to tidal forces from gravity in the sort of Earth Moon situation. They act on the moon so as to synchronize its rotation so that it matches its orbital period. And it, it only takes a few thousand years for this this to um, this locking to occur. And you'll find that most of the major moons in the the solar system are tidally locked to their planets particularly if they're in quite a close orbit to their planet um, because remember gravity's stronger the nearer you are to the more massive object and if you have two bodies very similar in mass so for example Pluto and its moon Charon they both become tidally locked to each other and and always present the same face to each other
2: This actually ties in very nicely. And Dominic, Andrew, I shall get back to you soon, I promise. But um, We've had a question from Slava Vitsev in Moscow who asks why the Moon is moving away from the Earth. And this is also related to to tidal locking, isn't it?
5: Yes, that's right. Because obviously the Earth has had a big effect on the Moon to produce this tidal locking by slowing its rotation. But the Moon has also had an effect in return on the Earth. And its tidal gravitational force acts on the Earth and oceans, again, as we've mentioned, with the tides. But that produces a breaking on the Earth's rotation very, very slowly. So the day is lengthening by about one or two milliseconds per century. So as the rate of spin of the Earth slows, the Earth is losing what is known as angular, or if you like, rotational momentum, and this is one of those fundamental quantities that must be conserved in any physical system, must be kept the same. So this lost energy can't disappear, it's actually transferred to the moon and the energy goes into moving the moon out into a slightly higher orbit around the Earth and that means it's moving away from the Earth at a rate of only about sort of three centimetres or so a year.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, could you answer this one from Luca Botic? He wants to know how X-rays
4: escape black holes. And I can see where he's coming from. We're told
2: that nothing can escape.
4: That's right. Black holes, of course, are remnants which are formed at the end of the lives of massive stars. And they form when the cores of these stars become so heavily compressed that the gravitational field around these cores is so strong that no force in nature can escape the attraction and so nothing can escape from the black hole. Now, it's true that black holes are often identified by their X-ray emission, but these X-rays are not actually coming from the black hole itself. They're coming from the surroundings of the black hole. Now, the chances are there'll be some gas close to the black hole. There might not be, in which case you won't actually see the black hole, but if there is some gas, then this will start to circle the black hole, and as more and more gas approaches the black hole it will form into a structure we call an accretion disk spiralling around the black hole and this accretion disk isn't a stable structure there's friction inside it as the gas molecules rub against one another and that slows the gas down and causes it to spiral into the black hole but it also means the gas gets incredibly hot and to begin with it becomes red hot or white hot and it starts to glow visibly and sometimes you can see that visible emission but it carries on getting hotter and hotter until it's at temperature of hundreds of millions of degrees, incomprehensible temperatures, at which it starts radiating in x-rays. And it's this incredibly hot gas spiralling in towards the black hole that we see, not actually the black hole itself, which we can't see because nothing can escape it.
2: Thank you, Dominic. And as always, if you've got any questions or comments for us, you can get in touch by email to astronomy at NakedScientists.com.
1: Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientists.com forward slash astronomy.
2: This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. John Stocky is a professor of astronomy at the University of Colorado. In addition to his day job using Hubble Space Telescope images to explore the gas in the universe, he travels the world researching ancient and aboriginal astronomy.
6: Why is it important to us what they knew? Uh, And indeed, even today, what I do is also what they still know. Because we have indigenous people living around the world in rather traditional ways, And they have knowledge which tells us about who we were, uh, who they are, and how the ideas of our world, uh, our worldview, our cosmology developed, and actually a tremendous amount about the diversity of that view. In the Western world, we have a, a single, very strong tradition that comes from Egypt and Babylon to Greece and then to Europe, and finally to uh, the United States and the rest of the world, we could, in fact, look at our world today and see that it is dominated by a single culture that started with the Renaissance 400-plus years ago. It's taken us in a specific way, uh, whether we like it or not. And so I often refer to that culture that we are a part of as the Western technological monoculture, Regardless of where you are in the world, in the big cities of the world, you're embedded in that culture, the culture of cell phones, Internet, jet planes, technology in general. But surrounding that are other cultures that allow us a diversity of understanding and experience that are rapidly going away. And so my thing is not so much to study ancient astronomy, but to study current day astronomy as practiced by indigenous cultures. And I love it because it gives me a diversity of understanding that I wouldn't get otherwise, and an appreciation for just different modes of thought than the mode that's present in, the, in our specific culture. It's sort of like if we could look at the roads that we, or the paths that we chose not to take, Okay, here are some of those paths, and they tell us something about who we are as a species, and I like that.
2: You've already implied that actually the extant populations of people who would understand this are are dwindling quite quickly. Where do we have to look to find people who are outside of this
6: culture? This is very important, and they do exist. Just this last year, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, We were in Peru this summer and got an opportunity to visit the Caro. Uh, that word Caro, Q-E-R-O, means vessel in the uh, Inca language, which is called Quechua. These Caro fled to the mountains uh, 500 years ago when the Spanish showed up, and they realized something bad was about to happen, and they took off. And they've been living there ever since. And so even though they interact with the Western culture, they still are able to maintain a lot of their own cultural values, their own traditions, their own way of life, which actually is uh, extremely robust and apparently quite healthy, despite living at 13,000, 14,000 feet. It's a remarkable culture, and we were able to study both their herbal plant medicine knowledge and a bit about their astronomy as well. More recently, we were in India, in southern India, in the mountains near a town called Udi, where there are still existing ancient tribals, they're called, people that not too long ago were not uh, very uh, interactive with Western culture, and at that point they were still using Stone Age tools. Well, just in the last few years, they've become more and more interactive. They've gotten things from our culture, but still they've been able to maintain some of their knowledge. And you're right, it's dwindling. We now live in a very precious time. If this knowledge is ever going to be preserved, these are the decades that it will will really determine how much the younger people of these tribes are going to school. These schools, typically mandated by state education systems, conform more and more to Western sensibilities and customs and knowledge, and that means that uh, there is a devaluation of this uh, cultural knowledge that comes from their elders. No longer is the oral tradition as strong as it used to be anywhere in the world, but thankfully there's still some there. So is it
2: purely the oral tradition we have to rely on? We're relying on the ways that people pass information from one generation to the next rather than, Mm. say, writing it down or instruments that we can look at or objects of art that might tie into their understanding of the universe?
6: Well, certainly all of those are possibilities. Uh, I work with an Australian Aboriginal elder in Northern Territories, Australia, Bill Harney is a wardaman, that's the name of his tribe, and he's also a custodian of uh, the rock art and uh, his tradition. And so the rock art is there, and we can go and look at it, but we need someone to tell the story. So actually, the oral tradition itself, I look at as part of what we want to preserve, the process itself. But, of course, there are other ways. Uh, Bill has uh, written books with people, I've collaborated with Bill and an Australian storyteller to produce a planetarium show showing Bill's astronomy knowledge. They have dark constellations, by the way, in uh, Bill's tradition. Uh, Dark clouds silhouetted against the Milky Way, which we find only in the southern hemisphere. And it's those unique pieces that I look at uh, and look for that I'm really interested in. The Inca also, the Caro, have dark constellations. Uh, other groups, uh, the Navajo and the U.S., have um, only eight constellations. So unlike the Greek sky, uh, the Greek Babylonian sky, which many people think, oh, those are the constellations. Well, that's one culture's constellations. The Navajo only have eight, and they've got a story, a creation story that tells why there are only eight. And the cultural understanding that comes out of that incompleteness of creation is an important aspect of uh, Navajo tradition and Navajo psychology and gives us a different perspective on both the sky and human beings uh, who have that kind of uh, reference. I love looking for the quirky little things that that different groups have.
2: I suppose without the people there to give you the context, this takes us back to the western technological Mm -hmm. culture we would view their objects their writing their art through a filter of our own culture which as you say comes down from the egyptian through the greek line does this mean that we need to be very very careful Mm -hmm. when constructing ancient or non-western astronomy we need to be very careful to ensure that we don't apply our own cultural filters to it
6: well we certainly are and we've seen plenty of examples of that, and people that read these chronicles uh, have to judge for themselves what they mean. A famous example is this uh, tribe in uh, Mali called the Dogon, who live on the edge of the desert, and it's been reported, uh, oh, for almost 100 years now, that somehow the Dogon knew about stars that are not visible to the naked eye, a companion to the brightest star in the sky, Sirius. Uh, In my opinion, that's an interpretation that is primarily an overlay of Western culture and science onto the traditional knowledge of the Dogon and interpreting it in a certain way that uh, doesn't make sense in terms of the ancient indigenous worldview uh, in which the sky and the earth are actually inseparable in some way and very local to the environment, something that We as a culture that know about spacecraft and visits to the moon and uh, distant galaxies have a hard time seeing the sky in that way. I do too. That's one reason it's so delightful to listen to these people relating to the sky in in this very different way. It's hard to step out of the cultural trance that the Western culture creates for us, but uh, I think it's essential to both understand and appreciate these cultures, to do that. So how can
2: understanding these other cultures, these other astronomies, how can that help to inform Western astronomy?
6: I don't look at it as informing Western astronomy specifically. As I mentioned earlier, we took, 400 years ago, we took a certain path as far as technological and scientific development. Uh, The scientific method is a uh, powerful objective, we like to say, methodology for finding truth, for making a better understanding of the world. But what the view from other cultures reminds us is that it may not be the only way to view the world. It may not be the only methodology that helps us understand all of our world. Certainly, viewing things scientifically requires that we view the world through our mind, That means that we're creating concepts. These concepts are largely drivers for our understanding, but at the same time provide limitations. Uh, For example, one thing that I see over and over again in ancient cultures and indigenous cultures today is a connection between themselves and the natural environment around them that actually is not generally present in Western society. And so... uh, When it comes to doing things with respect to the environment, happily we've finally come around to a place of greater respect for that. But ancient cultures have that right from the start because they're relating to the natural environment in a way that our culture just has not had the tradition for. In India we went out to visit the Kota people recently and their temple, they have smaller temples, but their primary temple is this enormous tree. And this enormous tree is at the center of their village and has been there by their tradition for a thousand years since the founder of that village came there and planted that, the seed for that tree. And so they worship uh, under that tree. Uh, they have traditions associated with that tree. Our places of worship are usually not in the natural environment, and so our places of worship help us to displace that connection feeling from the natural environment in other directions. Certainly these tribes, their astronomy, their ancient knowledge, their way of being helps us uh, see what we have lost by taking one path. It's not, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't have taken that path towards technological development. We wouldn't be sitting here talking in this way, in fact, uh, sharing these ideas uh, without that. But it's worthwhile, in my opinion, to look over our shoulder every now and then just to see, hey, was there something essential back there that we lost? Uh, and indigenous cultures help us do that.
2: That was John Stocky from the University of Colorado. Carolyn, could you answer this one from Terry Wombat Harrison, who you can probably guess from his name, is writing to us from Australia. He says, with the expansion of the universe, will there come a time when we just can't see anything?
5: So this is an interesting follow-on question to a recent question of the week that I did with The Naked Scientist, where we talked about how bits of the universe are expanding away from us greater than the speed of light – And what this means, if a galaxy is moving away faster than the speed of light, any photons of light leaving that galaxy can't outrun the expansion of space to ever get to us. And so from our viewpoint, that galaxy's light fades and disappears from our view. So not all the universe is observable to us. And what marks the edge of this observable horizon is the distance at which the universe is expanding away from us at the speed of light. But what we do know is that the expansion of the universe is accelerating and so increasing portions of the universe are becoming invisible to us. So this observable horizon keeps shrinking. And, you know, it depends on how the expansion of the universe goes into the future. But basically many billions of years in the future, maybe all we'll be able to see are just a very few nearby galaxies. And it's going to be the same for everyone As the expansion gets faster and faster, wherever you are in the universe, you'll end up only being able to see the bits really most close to you.
2: So all of the observing we're doing at the moment is really on things that we only have a limited time to see, albeit over a billions of years' timescale.
5: I think we should milk this, actually, for funding for our telescopes. We have to do it now or else all these galaxies will be lost to us forever. (laughs) Do you think it'll wash?
2: No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Andrew, this relates to another question that we quite often get asked, and that's does space have an edge?
0: Okay, well, an honest answer is that we don't know. So I can expand on that a little bit by asking well, what would an edge to space even be like? And what we'd probably be talking about is not sort of a a wall that you would run into and your spacecraft would go thunk and and get crushed against the wall. It wouldn't really be like that. We'd be more talking about a place where physics itself changed so radically as to leave space completely unrecognisable. So you would travel from one region into another where the laws of physics were so different that you would just sort of fall apart. There are actual theories put forward where this sort of thing happens. And one example would be the eternal inflation theory. Now, in that theory, most of the universe is expanding extremely rapidly in in a way that we term exponential expansion. And just relatively small, isolated sections have sort of dropped out of that exponential expansion. And And what we think of as our own universe, the bits that we've actually seen, would be one such section. But if you could travel far enough, there would actually be an edge to that section and you could get back into the exponentially expanding region where physics would look very different. Now, of course... We can't see any evidence for such an edge, but that's not to say that there isn't one because there's a fundamental limit to how far we can see. That's set by something called the cosmological horizon. So it is possible that there is sort of an edge to uh, what we think of as the normal universe at least, but we just haven't seen any evidence for it yet.
2: Does that mean that really this is bordering on a philosophical question rather than a scientific one? In a sense, I mean, especially if you think of what Carolyn's
0: just been telling us, that actually now, if if our calculations about dark energy are correct, we are in the future going to be able to see less distant things rather than more distant things. It's actually going to get harder and harder to find out about more and more distant things, uh, ironically. So, yes, on one level, that means perhaps we'll never be able to answer this observationally. On another level, though, perhaps by looking very carefully at the data in things like the cosmic microwave background, we might suddenly realise that there is some evidence for these kind of ideas just in a a more
2: indirect way than actually seeing an, an edge. Well, thank you very much. And sadly, that's all we have time for on this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next month with the very first show of 2011. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at com, And don't forget to send in your suggestions for what name we should give to our fast factoid roundup. If you would like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from the Naked Scientists, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council.